You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Treating osteoporosis can be daunting if your patient has a significant fracture risk but doesn't tolerate oral bisphosphonates or has failed bisphosphonate treatment. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I am joined by internationally recognized osteoporosis expert, Dr. Murray Favis, a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, author of over 100 scientific articles, 65 book chapters, and director of the University of Chicago Bone Program. And we will be discussing options for the patient who needs to go beyond the bisphosphonates. Welcome, Dr. Favis. Thank you. Let's talk about the patient who is not tolerating a bisphosphonate. As a gynecologist, I'm comfortable offering estrogen and progesterone for patients to improve their bone health, but many patients are reluctant. So where do you see the role of HRT either in patients who are not tolerating a bisphosphonate as an alternative or just along with the bisphosphonate? Well, it certainly is unfortunate that we can't use or we're not using estrogen as we would like because it's one of the handful of medications we have that clearly reduces hip fractures as well as spine fractures and such. And it's been well documented in large studies now. Having said that, Whereas the Women's Health Initiative's initial publications provoked so many uh, women into stopping uh, therapy, but now we see a reanalysis of some of that data that addresses the issues of the complications of coronary artery disease and the appearance of breast cancer. And uh, maybe we're in understanding a little better. Maybe there is a subgroup who might be better candidates for therapy with estrogens. And there is a, a publication in during the summer 2007 in JAMA which analyzed the complications by age at uh, starting hormone replacement therapy. Right, and of course, the younger women it, mm-hmm. uh, was very, very optimistic as far as their benefits. So we may see a resurgence of this we, we for, well. for bone health. Yes. Now, let's talk a little bit about the two intravenous bisphosphonate options, abandronate, which is given uh, intravenously every three months, and zoledronic acid, which is the once-yearly intravenous bisphosphonate. And, and my understanding is that the zoledronic acid is approved currently just to treat high levels of calcium in the blood associated with malignancy, multiple myeloma, Paget's disease. Do you expect zoledronic acid to be approved for treatment of osteoporosis, and how often is it currently being used off-label? Well, there's been a progressive increase in its use off-label over the last several years, and the company has published a large randomized trial uh, versus placebo in postmenopausal women using fractures as the endpoint. Uh, the, the fracture reductions in hip fractures and spine and other non-vertebral fractures was really uh, quite impressive. Just very recently, the FDA approved zoledronic acid for use in osteoporosis. So we're now So it in, is now approved. It is now approved and it's being moved into the pharmacies for uh, and will be available. And other than the obvious advantage of once a year versus every 3 months, can you comment on abandronate intravenously versus zoledronic acid? I think the zoledronic acid data on fracture reduction gives us information that we don't have uh, with uh, the intravenous abandronate. I think we can use both those sets of data to help us make our decisions. 
But the zoledronic acid uh, data, uh, which was 5 milligrams intravenously every 12 months, this was a three-year study, had rather dramatic uh, reductions in fracture rates. And do you ever see this being used as primary therapy for the patient who just doesn't want to take a weekly bisphosphonate? I could see how that it could well become first-line therapy, yes. And is this something that you think general primary care clinicians will be doing in their office, or is this going to be referral center only? I think it'll start out as a referral center only procedure just because of the necessity of having blood tests prior to the infusion and then just conducting the infusion itself. It's possible that some physicians who are involved quite heavily in managing osteoporosis will want to take that on and do it in their office. It, it's uh, doable if they have the space and set the up staffing. For it. Any, any it. major adverse outcomes or complications that the clinician needs to know about? Well, there's a great deal of information about zoledronic acid. Uh, as you comment on, it's been around for probably 15 years and is used in patients with hypercalcemia, malignancy, or people with bone cancer at 10 times the dose that's being used now for osteoporosis. So there's a lot of data, and it, it turns out to be a rather benign kind of drug. Uh, there aren't a lot of side effects. Mm -hmm. There is the concern that if the infusion is very rapid, that it can induce uh, renal damage. So that must be uh, watched very carefully that it's given over the appropriate period of time. So when you say that you monitor blood tests, you're looking at renal function? We're looking at renal function, right. And uh, patients with very low renal function below, uh, with creatinine clearances below 35 mils per minute should not receive intravenous bisphosphonates. But aside from that, the, the major side effect is the flu-like syndrome that may appear uh, one to three days after the infusion, may last for a day or for several days. It has all the features, all the symptoms of the flu, but... There's no influenza virus. There's no virus of any kind. It's a matter of release of cytokines that mimic the infection with influenza virus. And it turns out it's mainly a, a big nuisance. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about parathyroid hormone therapy, which obviously is an anabolic therapy to build bone as opposed to the anti-resorptive therapy slowing bone turnover as the bisphosphonates is doing. This right now is, of course, promoted for treatment of patients who fail to bisphosphonate. In what circumstances do you recommend teriparathyroid hormone therapy? Teriparatide has now been around for about five or six years now and has proven quite effective in increasing bone mass and reducing vertebral fracture rates. We tended to use it in people who have continued to have fractures while taking uh, oral bisphosphonates or who have had an intolerance to oral bisphosphonates and need uh, potent therapy to improve uh, their bone mass. Now, is it true that previous or current bisphosphonate therapy blunts the response to parathyroid hormone and you need to wait to start therapy until after the bisphosphonate has been discontinued for a time? It's certainly documented that people who have been on long-term bisphosphonate therapy may have a suboptimal response to teriparatide. But the chronic use of uh, bisphosphonates is not a contraindication or a reason why uh, one shouldn't uh, undertake teriparatide if indeed one thinks it's uh, indicated. Now, what about the risk of osteosarcoma? Is that real? It was a concern that arose from the animal studies. Initially, a strain of rats that had a predisposition 
to form osteosarcomas were actually used in the studies, and indeed, they did increase their rates of osteosarcoma formation. The doses of teriparatide were several times that used in humans. The length of time was the full lifetime of the rat. So it doesn't sound real for in the human studies. No, and of course, there are many people who have high parathyroid hormone levels for a variety of reasons and who have high parathyroid hormone levels for years. And the development of osteosarcoma is not a recognized complication. So so do you discontinue it after a couple of years? Yes. The guidelines are to use it for 24 months and then discontinue it. Now, there has been at least one study in which patients who received 24 months of therapy were then retreated a second time after 12 to 18 months of being off the initial course of therapy. So one can return to a second course of teriparatide. And do you see any benefit to intermittent treatment, meaning three months on, three months off, as opposed to weekly therapy? Well, there's some evidence that one can use the teriparatide uh, every other day and get as robust a bone density increase as daily injections. The on three months, off three months regimen didn't seem to look any different than the everyday regimen, and so there's some attraction to that. I haven't found my own personal experience that patients are reluctant to take a teriparatide every day or every other day once they get started. Once they're trained on how to administer the teriparatide, that issue seems to fall to the background. Let's talk a little bit about raloxifen. What circumstance do you recommend raloxifen? Raloxifen has a role in the patient who has fairly normal bone density and whom there's a desire to maintain that relatively normal bone mass. So as a preventative, I think it's most effective in that setting. It appears that once bone mass has been reduced and it's much more difficult to reestablish a reasonable increase in bone mass, there is a reduction in vertebral fracture rates with raloxifene, of course, but it seems to be best suited as a primary preventative. And you would put tamoxifen in that same category? I think tamoxifen may be somewhat weaker in terms of its bone anti-resorptive effects. The uh, response of patients to tamoxifen in terms of their bone mass is quite variable. Some people lose bone while taking it, others remain stable, and then a small portion will have some usually modest increase in bone mass. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when you talk about prevention therapy as opposed to someone who's already been diagnosed with osteoporosis, and certainly with the bisphosphonates, there are indications for prevention and at lower doses, but at least in my clinical experience, we don't see that happening very often. What is your recommendation as far as using a bisphosphonate for prevention in the patient who doesn't show an increased fracture risk? One can certainly accomplish that with the available oral bisphosphonates. Uh, one can maintain a relatively normal bone mass for extended periods of time using the oral bisphosphonates. The question is, is it economically useful and does one really change the, uh, the natural course of things? The number of people one needs to treat to prevent one fracture is rather large when you start therapy in someone who has a, a normal bone mass. So it sounds like if you're monitoring that person closely, you're not going to lose so much ground that it even makes it worthwhile to do a preventative bisphosphonate. 
Right. I mean, 20% of postmenopausal women will not lose bone. And so we would like to know who they are so we don't have to treat them. I think the, the more mild uh, anti-resorbing agents like uh, raloxifene and tamoxifen can be used when there's some suggestion or some real reduction in bone mass, but the bone mass is still fairly normal and the fracture risk is still pretty mm -hmm. modest. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Murray Favis, for helping us better understand how to guide our patients through the treatment and prevention of osteoporosis. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com or to listen to this interview again, find us at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.